chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. It's found on page, I just lost my spot, 75 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord with ears to hear. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your word. And I pray, Father, that you would use this word today, that your name might be lifted high, and, Father, that we might worship in spirit and in truth. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen. Thanks, Baxter. You know, the problem with uh, modern warfare is that the enemy plays dirty. You know, we, we now have uh, not conventional warfare, but what's called asymmetrical or unconventional warfare. Gone are the days of two enemies wearing distinctive uniforms, standing in a field shooting at each other with clearly defined lines. And even World War II, we might say, was the last clearly defined war of the good guys and the bad guys clearly delineated between the two. That's never been simple, but things have changed, really. Um, now civilians are targeted in ways they haven't been in the past. Um, suicide bombers are used. In fact, it's not just that civilians are, are collateral damage, but often now civilians are the damage that salt, is sought after. Even this week, Wednesday, in uh, Kabul, Afghanistan, a suicide bomber killed 34 people at an education center uh, where they had gone to take an admission exam uh, for uh, university, many of whom were teenagers. It's awful. The enemy plays dirty. Well, we come this morning to a text in which the Amalekites, or Amalek, and his people attack Israel. And the thing is, they play dirty. They don't play fair. Um, we'll get to that in a minute of, of how we know that. I'm deeply relying on two sources this morning. One is a commentary by Philip Ryken, just an amazing commentator. 
And he really bears a lot of this out. And then a guy named Patrick Curls, who's the associate pastor, assistant pastor in, in Trinity Montgomery, and using much of our, our Sunday school curriculum, as we take this text, and I want us to use this text to think about how the pattern that we see of the physical warfare that Israel is, in, is fighting with their enemies, with uh, Amalek, and how that points us to our spiritual warfare that we have against the evil one. Because the fact is that Satan plays dirty. This is how he works. You know, the, we're in a constant battle every day of our lives. The, the most dangerous place to be in a battle is not on side A or side B. The, the most dangerous place to be is to be in the battle and not know you're in the battle. And I think so often we don't realize or we forget that every day really is a battle. There's no vacation to spiritual warfare. Satan likes to play dirty. The Amalekites like to play dirty. But the good news is that Christ has and will provide victory to all those who look to Him and stand in His strength and stand in the power of His might. Well, we find ourselves at Rephidim. You remember that God had brought His people there after the food crisis ending with the manna? And when they got there and encamped there, not just passing through, it was found that there was no water there. We looked at that last week in the test at at Massa and Meribah, which God's people failed. But God brought His people to Rephidim not just to test them with no water, but also to test them with an attack from the Amalekites. Many commentators have pointed out that there's a shift here. In two ways. One, we go from internal threats of doubting God, trusting God or not, to a very physical threat of here comes the enemy and we've got to get our swords out and fight. The second way this is distinct is that these, they actually succeed in this test. It's kind of refreshing getting to a text in which the Israelites come out looking pretty good. It's been a while since we've seen that. It's really honestly been since the Passover uh, and when they left Egypt back in, um, what's that, 14, 12? And when they left in 12. It's been a while since the Israelites have looked good. But they finally look good today. We read in verse 8, uh, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Well, who is this Amalek anyway? Well, the first thing we say, must say is that he was dead by this point. Uh, by about 400 and some odd years. It was common in this day to refer to a people by their descendant. Amalek was the grandson of Esau, of Jacob and Esau's fame. And Jacob and Esau were at odds. They they didn't exactly enjoy the most convivial of relationships. And neither did their descendants. And so there is this people group called the Amalekites, and they trace their lineage back to Amalek. Now, we see this later in Scripture in lots of places where God, especially the prophets, will refer to Israel as Jacob. who will refer to this whole group of people by the name of Jacob. And so here we have a people group, the Amalekites, who are called by their their descendant king, Amalek. By this point, this group of people was a nomadic people. Uh, They were fierce warriors, and they were known for playing dirty. They had no home base. They roamed around praying on the weak, using some blitzkrieg kind of tactics, using the camel. We don't think of a camel as a particularly fast animal, but but over short distances, camels can be really quite fast. And they would come in and destroy a weak people group and plunder their goods and stay there for a while and then move on to the next prey. 
We don't know why they came down to attack the Israelites. Um, Perhaps they knew they were coming and they decided to deal with them on the front end. We we don't know, apart from the fact Satan must have spurred them on because Satan hates God's people. But we know they played dirty. That's not from this text. It's it's not clear from this text, but if if you turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 25, we have an account of this situation in which Moses is reminding his people as they are standing outside the promised land, soon to go in after his death, he reminds them in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 18, a new generation, not the same generation, they had died out, but a new generation of what had happened. We read in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 18, Remember what Amalek, the Amalekites, did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, And cut off your tail, those who are lagging behind you. And he did not fear God. Whom did the Amalekites go after? Were they playing clean warfare, an honorable uh, offense, an honorable assault between two warring nations? No. Who did they attack? They attacked the infirm, the weak, children, women, the soft targets, just like the Taliban, ISIS, and others do these days. These are old tactics. The Israeli army, Israelite army might have been over here, but they were going here. The baggage train, the tail, those who were lagging behind, those who were sick and infirm, they were playing dirty. This is exactly how our fierce enemy, Satan, plays. He goes after the soft targets. He goes after us in ways that we don't anticipate. Physical combat will come and go in our days. Armistices and treaties will be signed. There will be seasons of ceasefire. But my friends, spiritual combat will continue until the day we go to be with Jesus. And in the words of one great Puritan, sin will either be killing us or we will be killing it. There's no middle ground. There's no time for a truce. This is brought up in Ephesians 6.12 where we find out exactly whom we are fighting against. It's not against flesh or blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And Satan and his minions, they play dirty. Satan's had a lot of practice. A lot of practice. This world's, what, about 6,000 years old or so? He's seen a lot of generations come and go. He's had time to refine the ways he does things. Our nature doesn't change. One generation to the next, we're all still sinful, struggling with the same things over and over again, but Satan's gotten pretty good at it. But even his starting blow was pretty effective, right? In the Garden of Eden with Eve and Adam. And soon they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Y'all, Satan plays dirty. Did God really say that? God doesn't want you to be like Him. Is God really good? He plays dirty. Did you know that the FBI has a gun collection of over 7,000 firearms? Now some of y'all might have that in your bedrooms, underneath your, your, uh, your beds, or in your closets. Perhaps all of us together could certainly come up with that many. But the way they do this is that anytime they come against a, a gun that they've never seen before, or a model, or a variant, or something a little different, 
that gun doesn't go into evidence. A picture of it might, I don't know. But they take the gun and they take it to their museum or to their workroom or whatever this thing is called so that they will know what they're up against. So they can look for the ballistics. They know the battle. They know the weapons of the evil one. Do you know the weapons of the evil one? The Amalekites would have had swords and spears and camels. If they're really advanced, they might have had chariots, but there's no evidence of that here. They play dirty, and the evil one plays dirty against us. We've been talking about this in our youngish, marriedish Sunday school class. Um, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s-ish and would like to join us, uh, we meet up in Charlotte's old classroom. Love to have you, 9.30 every Sunday morning. This is what we've been talking about. The first is temptation. This is the first weapon in Satan's armory. John, uh, excuse me, James 1.13 tells us that it is not God who tempts anyone. God tempts no one. But temptation comes from our flesh and from the world and from the devil. Satan, your adversaries, and what Satan, your adversary, and what one commentator calls his unholy helpers, it's a good phrase, right? His minions, they use temptation. Have you ever read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe um, in the Chronicles of Narnia, or perhaps seen the movie? There's this great um, scene in which Edmund, one of the four children, comes into contact with the white witch. Do you remember this scene? And, and she knows what he wants. She wants information out of him. She wants something from him to do, bring dishonor to the family name, to get information out of him. So she offers him a great confectionery wonder called Turkish Delight. Have you ever had Turkish Delight? It tastes so good. The good kind does. But you can get some from like, you know, that are prepackaged from Walmart. That's, that's nasty stuff. But a true confectioner who makes Turkish delight, y'all, it just it melts in your mouth. It's so good. And Edmund there, sitting, eating his Turkish delight, C.S. Lewis writes this, At first, Edmund tried to remember that it's rude to speak with your mouth full. But soon he forgot about this and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could. And the more and more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. He never asked himself why the queen should be so inquisitive. She knew what he wanted. And she gave it to him. And when it first started as a taste, soon began cramming it into his mouth as fast as he could. That's all he could think about. But you know, the rest, well, if you've read the book, you know the rest of the story. Soon he doesn't get any more of that Turkish delight. Soon it was just a lie. Soon it was just to get what, what the witch wanted, which was information, secret information that would bring danger to his siblings. This is how temptation works. Satan, the world, the flesh, the devil, they, they put before us something that looks good. You know, we often talk about um, temptation being like a, a fish lure. Um, you know, that you have to present something that looks really tasty that appeals to us, that our affections would go after. And you have to hide the hook. And you know, that first time you might have to hide the hook. But there comes a point down the road when you've given in temptation enough, you see the hook and you no longer care that it's there. And that's a scary place to be. And all you want, because you've given in before, 
And the more you say yes, the easier it is to say yes, and the harder it is to say no to the point where you remember the hook, but you don't remember its bite quite as much. Or you remember the hook and you just don't care. That's where Eben was. He just wanted all he could get. What's that place for you, that weak spot? That's where Satan's going to come at after you. He's not going to come out after you where you've got your defenses up like the Israelites. They had their army ready. They knew they were coming and Joshua sent out the army. But where did they go? They went around the edges to the train, to the tail. Two to three million people is a lot of people. And when you think about a a camp that big, there are going to be some weak spots. Where's that weak spot for you? Don't pretend like you're so spiritual that you don't have one. We've all got them. That's where Satan's coming. Are we ready? Are we ready? 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Do you know what a pincer movement is? It's a classic military maneuver that involves what's called double envelopment. You, You surround your enemy from two sides. He might be prepared for you over here, but he's not ready for a two-sided attack overwhelming him. Well, the, the, the number two of the one-two punch of Satan's tactics is that of deception. He is a liar. John 1, excuse me, John 8, 14, Jesus says this about Satan. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar. And the father of lies. What's dirty about temptation is that there are going to be lies that are going to come along with that temptation. Students that you're at school and and people are doing what you know they're not supposed to, the lie is no one's going to like you unless you do that. No one's going to love you unless you do that. You're not going to be happy unless you fall into this. You can handle the temptation. I can handle this. One-time thing. It's no big deal. Just like that Turkish delight, the the one bite led to many, many more till he was shoving in his mouth to get as much as he could. Satan will tell you you have no power to say no, that sin's just too powerful and you cannot walk away. My friends, that's a lie. Romans Romans 6 tells us that the, the power of sin has been broken over us. And we can't say no to sin that Jesus empowers us to by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He'll tell you the old line that you can sin now and repent later. There's just enough truth here, right, to make it sound plausible? Of course we always sin now. We sin every day in thought, word, and deed, and we are called to repent later. But we're never called to have that mentality of, "I, I can sin now so that grace may abound. Romans 6 tells us, by no means, how can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? But Satan doesn't just throw his lies at individuals. He, he also sends it to churches. Satan loves it when a church or a church or religious leader teaches something that is contrary to the Word of God. Now, we have differences with other Bible-believing Christians. I'm not talking about the mode of baptism or something like that, of which you know our Baptist brethren, our Methodist brethren, we might differ on some of those things. But that's, those aren't core things for our salvation. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those things that that draw us away from Jesus. 
And it first sounds so good, like you have to earn your salvation. Finally, something I can do. Or you have to be good, that gives us pride. Those are heretical thoughts. Or when we get rid of the Word of God as authoritarian, authoritative. excuse me. You know, this happened in our old denomination, the PCUS, which later became the PCUSA, began to become liberal in the 1930s with some stuff before that too. And we finally left in the early 90s. Because by that time, the Word of God had been abandoned. And there were unhelpful positions that had been taken for quite some time. You know, uh, if you've ever looked at the back of a rat poison box, I know you just casually do that, um, you'll, you'll notice that uh, there's a lot of stuff in there that's good. There's some sort of organic matter in there that is tasty to the rat. And, and the percentage of poison is just, just tiny. A point zero zero one percent kind of level. But just, just enough of that. Just enough of the lie is enough to kill the organism. Once I was on a mission trip to an Asian country. And uh, one of the students I was trying to reach for Christ, she, she was being nice and she handed me a piece of candy. And it was a chocolate bonbon, about that big around. And, you know, it was wrapped in something really nice. And, uh, you know, when you give someone candy, you, you're giving it to them because it's going to taste good, right? Well, that was a lie. Uh, because in this Asian country, you don't use milk to make chocolate. I don't know how that works. But it wasn't filled with caramel or ganache or something that tasted really good. Do you know what it was filled with? Rice wine. And, y'all, that stuff is disgusting. And she handed me this this thing, just watching eagerly, and I opened it up, and I popped the whole thing in my mouth, and it was everything I could do. It was a lie, right? It looked good. That's how Satan works. If if there was a, um, well, I'll get to that later. Accusations. So uh, this is the third tactic or a third tactic. There are others that Satan has. Revelations 12.10 tells us that Satan is our accuser. He tempts you into doing something. He wants you to go astray from God's word. And then as soon as you do it, he says, ha, look at you, you're no Christian. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't struggle with that. If you were a real Christian, you wouldn't have said yes again. God doesn't really love you. If people knew, if people knew, they would never talk to you again. No one else struggles with this. The accusations, they come quick. We end up wallowing in shame. Shame that we're not meant to live in. Shame that is dealt with at the cross of Jesus. Not just guilt. Our Savior was naked. That is shameful. Bearing our guilt and shame for us. Romans 8.1 tells us the truth there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.33 says, Who can bring any charge against God's elect? No one can because all the charges have been answered. Romans 8.38, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor thing present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan is a liar. Satan is a tempter. Satan is an accuser. What about those pesky Amalekites? Let's get back to them. 
Well, we, we finally meet Joshua in this text. We'll be talking about him more later. He plays a role later at Mount Sinai, um, and certainly it plays a big role once Moses dies. He is the next leader. And we get the first uh, indication of that. that. Moses is sure to give to, or I guess God does. Yeah, the Lord says to Moses, hey, give this in writing to Joshua. We get the first indication that Joshua is going to be the heir apparent here. Um, so uh, Moses tells Joshua, hey, get the troops together. He goes, says, go and select uh, men. Most likely... That means go and find anyone that's got a sword. They don't have any military training. They've been in Egypt for the last 400 and some odd years. They hadn't been trained. These are ragtag troops with, with secondhand um, weapons, if, if any weapons at all. Maybe just, you know, plowshares and big clubs. We don't know. And so Moses takes Aaron and her up to the hillside overlooking the battlefield. And uh, he takes the staff of God. And he goes up there and he raises the staff. And as long as he has the staff of God raised above his head, the Israelites win. But as soon as his arms get heavy and the staff begins to fall, the Amalekites begin to win. Which shows us very clearly it's not because of the Israelite military prowess that they win. Apart from the direct intervention and fighting of God for his people, they would have lost. And so Aaron and her come up with a pretty good idea. They go and get a stone, they place it on the ground, they put Moses on the stone, have him sit down, and they hold up his hands or his arms so that the staff can remain raised, giving him support, showing, as we'll see next week, that one leader isn't meant to carry all the burden of of leadership. Next week we'll talk about the qualifications of a deacon and elder from the next text, actually, from Exodus 18. And as long as the staff is raised, God's people maintain victory. But we see that it calls calls into view here God's sovereignty. He's the one fighting. But at some point, they have to go out and start swinging those those swords, don't they? This is how our fight with Satan works. Christ is the one who provides the victory. He has already provided the victory. Colossians 2.15 says he disarmed, disarmed, past tense, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them, past tense, to open shame by triumphing, past tense, over them in him. We are called to stand firm in his might, in the strength of his might, Romans 6.10. At the same time, if we don't take time to start swinging around the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, or don't take time to take up the shield of faith or the helmet of salvation or gird ourselves with the belt of truth or fastening on the belt plate of righteousness, breastplate of righteousness, we are doomed in our fight against Satan. Have you ever had that dream that you show up at work and you're not fully clothed? That's silly. That's silly, right? Yet this is what we do every day. When we leave our house not prepared to do battle with the evil one, it's silly. How could we think we could could go through the temptations of the day or the complexities of conflicts with your coworkers or or just even raising children or your marriage or, or your battle of your mind if we think that we can do those things without pursuing Jesus and His power for our days ahead of us? Certainly. Certainly, if Moses had not held up the staff, the Israelites would have lost. Certainly, in our days, if we go out naked spiritually, we're not ready for battle. 
If there was a murderer in your neighborhood and it was told to you that he was coming to kill you, what would you do? You'd barricade your house, you'd find your kids and your wife, you'd get your shotgun out, then you'd call the police in that order. My friends, there's one out there that was looking to destroy your marriage. He is out there to destroy your kids, to lead them to temptation. He wants you to fail. And He's not going to present something that looks ugly. He's going to come at you in all the right places. Stand strong in His might, the power of Christ. Put on the helmet of salvation. Put on the shield of armor. Put on these things. And let us remember that Christ has given us the victory. Our text here ends with the Lord telling Moses to go and write these things in a book, which likely becomes a draft of Exodus. And then he goes, Moses then goes and builds an altar and calls it Jehovah Nisi, or Yahweh Nisi, where the Lord is my banner. A banner is a military device, an ensign, a flag, a pole, some sort of signal around which you um, congregate, around which you rally. And God's people had rallied that day around the Lord and He had provided them salvation. Well, in our battle against not flesh and blood, the Amalekites, but against Satan, there is another banner. It's not a what, but it's a who. It's our Savior, Jesus. The banner of the cross, the banner of our Savior upon the cross. We have this language in two of the songs we've already sung today. And we'll sing another one here in a second. But John 3.14 tells us, As Moses lifted up the serpent, lifted up the Moses, uh, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Our Savior was lifted on the pole, on the cross. He is our ensign. He is our flag. He is our banner. He is our hope. He is our salvation. The God-man Jesus was sacrificed for you, sacrificed Himself and crushed that we might be healed and might be saved. My friends, let us look to the Lord, our banner, our Savior, who has died and has been raised from the dead, that we might stand strong in the power of His might. Let's pray. So Lord, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. And you have provided us victory in the cross. You have provided us victory in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us to go forth in this daily battle as soldiers committed to the cause of Christ, as those who have been won over by the blood of Jesus. Give us strength that we might say no to the evil one. Pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.